The Galloping Ghost is participating in the 2011 Reno Air Races when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this plane to crash into the stands at this popular air racing event? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I don't know if Miranda will get mad at this one. There's a distinct possibility. I don't know if there's necessarily... Well, I mean, I guess there's something to get mad about. No, there's definitely something to get mad about. I just don't know the extent of her there's anger. There's several things to get mad about. I don't know. I guess it we'll depends say. on how stupid it was. Was it pretty stupid? Mm. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty tragic, but we're doing something completely different today. Oh, yeah. Very different. But before that... Do we have any housekeeping? Uh, make sure to submit your August stories, your back-to-school and or learning stories Flight for school. August. Remember, we're doing a thing where you can suggest September, October, and November's listener episode topics. So if you want to suggest something to us, just email us, info at hardlandingspodcast.com. Or you can message us on any of our social media or leave a comment on a post on the website. Like, it really doesn't matter where. We'll see it. We'll see it eventually. You can put it on Facebook. Anywhere. We are the ones who manage our social media. We don't have someone for that. So we all yeah, see it. We see it. Yep. So if you have an idea of what you want September, October, or November to be, we'll pick the best one and we'll let you know who suggested it. So, But we still don't have a topic for September. And we will need that in a couple weeks. So make sure you submit that to us. Okay, I think that's it. Check out the Patreon. As always, check out the merch. We are all wearing store. merchandise today. We are. We are. Brendan <laughs> was even wearing merch today. Uh-huh. So check out the merchandise tab on our page. Remember that if you if there's anything on there that you want that we don't have, just to message us and let us know. We did add a remove before flight keychain at someone's request. Yep. So. He also requested a lanyard, but they don't have lanyards on the thing that we use. Oh, which surprises me. I have a freaking request. They have puppy t-shirts. Oh, do you want a puppy t-shirt? I want a puppy t-shirt from a puppy. Puppy t-shirts, yeah. Okay. Well, now that you have a puppy, it makes sense. (laughs) Yes. But before, like trying to put something on your cats, would I? Yeah. I understand that probably no one else will buy it, but I need it. That's fine. We can do that. <laughs> I can I can do that. It takes me like 30 seconds. So. Okay, cool. That that's that is my everything. Excellent. <laughs> All right, friendos, what are we covering today, Nick? So today we're covering something special. Today we're covering the 2011 Reno Air Races crash. This was recommended by And thank you to <laughs> Chris, our patron Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Excellent. This one was really different and I'm glad we got to do it. So this incident happened on November 16th of 2011. This was a North American P-51D. Mustang. A Mustang. With a tail number November 79111. So this airplane was a World War II fighter. It is most notoriously the best World War II fighter, arguably. It was the most mass produced during the war. And it was, it's held a legacy ever since. I actually know somebody who owns one. I, yes, we do. We're very familiar with him. We're very familiar with the P-51. It is quite the airplane. It is incredible, an incredible machine. So this is a single pilot airplane. But we'll get to that. The pilot for this flight 
today was James K. or Jimmy Leeward. He was 74 years old. He had a total of 13,200 hours, which is pretty good. Wow. 2,700 hours of which were on the P-51. Nearly all of that was doing air races, because that's what he did. The Reno Air Races in 2011 were the National Championship Air Races at Reno Stead Airport in Reno, Nevada. 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 So, the National Championship Air Races is the organization that puts it on. The Reno Air Races is the event. It's a very big event every year. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. It is the pinnacle of air racing. It's like NASCAR, but planes? Yep. (laughs) Yeah, a lot more stuff can go wrong with planes. But faster and airborne. If you hit another plane, you're both going down. Like, yeah. Yep. You can't bump people out of the sky because you will eventually be out of the sky. Yep. 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 This particular P-51 had been used for a lot of years, most of its life, as a matter of fact, after World War II, as an air racer. It competed in the Reno Air Races under several names with a couple different owners, but in 2011, it raced under the name The Galloping Ghost and was numbered 177 for the race. The airplane was a super heavily modified plane meant specifically for the races. The wings had been clipped twice for a total of 8 feet removed from the span, The horizontal stabilizer was also shortened by over a foot. It also had a smaller canopy than the original P-51. All of this reduces drag and makes it faster. Yep. It also had a modified cooling system, which also reduced drag and also better cooling. It's interesting. Quite the modified airplane. The airplane was lighter and faster than its original construction. It went from an airplane that flew at about 300 miles per hour to a racer that could fly over 500 miles per hour. Oof. Yeah. That's fast. It's yep. fast. That's very fast. Yep. Jimmy Leeward was a veteran racer of 30 years, and he was anxious to race one of his friends, former astronaut Hoot Gibson. Robert Hoot Gibson. Yep, Robert Hoot Gibson. He goes by Hoot. Which he was at the races with his airplane as well, but unfortunately his plane suffered a mechanical problem when he got there. That meant he would not be competing. I think when he was interviewed for Air Disasters, he qualified in fourth? Yeah, something like that. He qualified fourth overall for the unlimited championship, but burned a hole in a piston. Yeah. So it he, was not usable. He helped Jimmy prep for the 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 race. The race. So even though they were competitors, they were good friends too. They were really least. good friends. He, repetitively he said, Dear, dear friend. Yes. The Galloping Ghost was in the unlimited class gold race. So that is the top of the top race. This is the ultimate race for the national championship air races. This class had fewer restrictions and higher speeds than most races. On race day, the airplane fired up and taxied up for takeoff for the main event. The Galloping Ghost took to the sky with five other heavily modified race planes. All six planes lined up wingtip to wingtip next to a chase plane, which then announced to all six pilots, you have a race as they crossed the start line, and off they would go for a six-lap, extremely high-adrenaline, high-speed race. The airplane's are only 100 to 200 feet above the ground, circling around some large pylons embedded in the ground that marked out an eight-mile loop. It would take the competitors about one minute to complete each loop. Fast. (laughs) A large crowd was on the ramp, spectating the entire event, eagerly watching their favorites race. There was a large general crowd area behind some barricading, as well as some nicer VIP boxes with a front row seat to all of the action. The Galloping Ghost was toward the back of the pack after the start, 
but very quickly gained a lot of speed. After a full lap of racing, the ground crew reported that everything looked good with the airplane. They were watching the telemetry live from the ground, similar to any major car race like NASCAR or Formula One. All of the airplanes were outfitted with this, you know, ground-to-air live telemetry. They could basically track all the important parameters of the airplane. By lap two, number 177, or the Galloping Ghost, was in fourth place. The airplane was speeding along at over 450 miles an hour. Lap 3 started, and the Galloping Ghost quickly jumped to 3rd, right behind Voodoo, which was a similarly heavily modified P-51. The gap was only 4.5 seconds between the two airplanes, and closing, as well as an 8.8 second from the Galloping Ghost to the leader, Strega, which was also a modified P-51. As the plane was rounding Pylon 8 at about 512 miles per hour, 445 knots, Nearing the crowd side of the track, it suddenly went from a 73-degree stabilized left bank for the heavy turn to a dangerously excessive 93-degree left bank. Then suddenly the airplane pitched up abruptly and steeply toward the sky at an 80-90 to degree nose-up attitude, which is not a normal emergency pitch-up. It's much steeper. The airplane also spun back to the right simultaneously. The airplane climbed for a moment and then began a diving helical flight path back toward the ground, nose first, as the spectators, competitors, controllers, and his friend Hoot watched from the ground. At 4.25 p.m., eight seconds after the initial left bank, the airplane struck the airport ramp in the VIP spectator box area of the crowd, disintegrating upon impact and hurling bits of the spectator area out into the open ramp. Some people seated nearby miraculously were uninjured, but 69 people were not as lucky and were in varying states of injured. Then there were the very unfortunate 10 spectators who perished. Jimmy Leeward also perished upon impact. There was no fire from the crash as the airplane had impacted at a very high rate of speed, demolishing it into tiny pieces. Yikes. That's it. It happened so fast. Nine seconds from when he lost control. And this was the worst disaster at the Reno Air Races. And the third worst air show accident in U.S. history. Wow. So tell me, Christy, what What happened was... What happened was... This investigation was performed by the... NTSB. I was going to say the CAB, but that didn't make sense. (laughs) No, this is in 2011. The NTSB. And they didn't actually have to travel very far. When I say not very far, I mean about 100 yards since they were already at the race promoting air safety awareness. Oh, well. Hmm. They watched the whole thing happen. Hey, Gary, we got a crash. <laughs> oh, let me pack up the tent. <laughs> they watched the whole no, thing happen. No, they watched happen. the entire thing, which they is were... pretty incredible, because when do you get to actually witness the crash you investigate? Uh, it's also true. horrifying, but that, that, yes, they were in the audience 100 yards away. So well, that's fortunate and unfortunate. It's awful and convenient all at the same time. This investigation had a particular brand of difficulty to it. Because the plane impacted at over 500 miles an hour, all the pieces were very, very small. Yes. I think in the Air Disasters episode, they said the largest piece was three square feet. That's not very big. No. No. Investigators had to do a full grid of all the tiny pieces from the impact all the way back to Pylon 8, and all of that data recording and collection took a long time. Needless to say, the remaining races were canceled. Yes. In the meantime, let's talk about what they could do more immediately. 
obviously there was a wealth of witnesses. And more importantly, a wealth of witnesses who were taking photos and video the entire time. Right. So, in fact, with all the data compiled, every single second of the race and accident sequence was recorded. Something investigators wish they had all the time. Now's about the time that you might be wondering if the plane itself recorded anything. Well, yes and no. The plane was not equipped, nor was it required to be equipped, with any black boxes. Kind of expected in general aviation. But this wasn't your average general aviation. This was a racing plane. As such, the plane was equipped with a multitude of data sensors that transmitted wirelessly back to the ground so that the ground crew and engineers could monitor the data in flight. So investigators basically had an operating flight data recorder, and the data went back for a couple years rather than just 25 hours. Which is pretty miraculous. We'll come back to that in a bit. Since we're still waiting on the status of wreckage and debris, let's turn elsewhere for a bit. Could something have happened to the pilot? Despite a history of high blood pressure that was not reported to the FAA or close friends. Not a, not a good thing. No. Leeward's autopsy showed no sign of heart attack nor any drugs or alcohol that could have disabled him. The only thing that autopsy showed note of was ethanol and methanol, which makes sense since he was covered in fuel. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunate, but true. Let's go back to some of the flight data, though. The telemetry on board was able to record vertical acceleration, or G's, as it's more loosely called. We on the ground experience 1G, the Earth's gravitational pull on us. In roller coasters, you experience more like 2G's, though some of the more extreme ones go up to 5G's. Two seconds before the top of his dangerous arc in the sky, Leeward was experiencing 4G's in the race itself. Just in every turn, he was experiencing 4G's, which is pretty crazy to sustain, especially when you're 74 years old. Right. It dipped down to about 2Gs before he shot skyward, and the telemetry recorded a maximum of about 9Gs. You don't stay conscious for that. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter your age. Even fighter jet pilots don't go that high, since you will black out, which is almost certainly what happened in this case and is why Jimmy Leeward did not regain control and crash into the stands. Yeah, fighter pilots can go up to 9Gs, but they have to train themselves for it. They usually have G-suits to help them along the way. This is not something you just do. No. So, he was unconscious. Now, here's something kind of cool and geeky for me in particular, because I've done this kind of analysis myself. Investigators took the videos and were able to graph position over time. Now for some math. There's a whole host of ways to do this, but you take the derivative of the position graph and you get the velocity graph. Take the derivative again and you get acceleration, or vertical g's. There is an picture of the NTSB's graph on our website of the telemetry on board versus the video analysis. The video analysis, which shows a perfect parabola, says that the G's leeward was experiencing were probably more like 17.3 G's. That's a lot. Yeah, no, he was completely unconscious. He would have been dead in a short amount of time. So, now investigators were able to start sorting through the wreckage at a hangar in Sacramento, California. All of it was covered in grease, oil, fuel, you know, the innards of the plane. Well, yes. Obscuring the plane's well-known gray paint. All except one part, which was found a ways away from the impact between Pylon 9 and the starting line. And it was still gray and not slimy. Well, you remember all of that video and photo data the investigators had to sort through? Yeah. Well, the media were having an absolute heyday and already did that. And they found a key clue and were broadcasting it across every television in the country. In addition to repeating the footage of the impact, which you can find online, or in the Air Disasters episode, Watch With Caution, 
There were also photos of the plane still in flight, but a particular part was in the midst of falling off. Oh, no. Turns out, that part was the one clean part that was found separately from the rest of the wreckage. It was later identified as the left elevator trim tab. So the left elevator trim tab, these trim tabs are actually, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but these trim tabs are actually how the elevator actuates. Because it's simpler to move a small tab versus the entire elevator when it's cable-driven, like these airplanes. So you move that small tab, and what that does is it actually, move it in turn moves the elevator in the opposite direction, essentially. So when you actually pull up, it's pulling tension on that trim tab in the opposite direction, so it pulls down on it, and Which sort of. Which pushes the elevator up. Yes, it, it really, it, yes. And so it, it pushes the elevator in the opposite direction, and the elevator then allows the airplane to climb, and vice versa for push forward on the stick. So these trim tabs are how you actually control the elevator on the horizontal stabilizer on the airplane. What was the accident we covered that we talked about that? I think it was the Emory Emory Worldwide. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yep. Miranda was going to do it for a Miranda Sode and then realized... If you got the newsletter, I'm sorry. <laughs> I realized right after I was looking and actually doing my research that we already covered it. So that's so what you'll that get a surprise about. about what we're covering. Refer to that episode number, which I do not have handy. It was in January. That's all I remember. Okay. <laughs> Photos from three days earlier showed that the trim tab had actually been a little high, trailing edge up between five and eight degrees. There are pictures on our website. All of these pictures are on our website. Yes. Behold, eight degrees up. It's very slight. Yes. It doesn't look like much, but it is. Photos from the accident flight showed something similar with the trailing edge up, rounding pylon eight. Then the plane began its sudden left roll, which evidence showed was not by a pilot input, and the left elevator trim tab was out of view of the camera. So in other words, the elevator trim tab had actually moved entirely. So that the camera couldn't see it. For that to happen, it would have had to have been at 21 degrees trailing edge up at least, and the maximum allowed by the system was 13 degrees, so something inside broke uh, during the image. Well... That's what happens when you have a cable-driven aircraft, though. Sort of. It's more likely. The next image was from when the plane had rolled back to the right and was pitched up. The left elevator trim tab was fared, or was even with the elevator, and the right elevator trim tab was trailing edge down. Investigators determined that this meant that the right elevator trim tab link assembly was also broken at this point. This photo was during the 17.3Gs. Yikes. The next picture was about a tenth of a second later and showed the left trim tab was trailing edge down and the right one was trailing edge up, still showing the mismatch. Then the photo showed the left elevator trim detach from the inboard hinge. Uh, yeah. This is just a repeat photo. And finally, photos captured the moment that it did indeed separate. If you look in the pictures, they actually support the theory that Jimmy Leeward was unconscious, as you can see him slumped over his controls down, forward, and to the right of the cockpit. Yeah, it's right behind the big black thing thing that you see there. That's him. The little round thing is him. It was then 4.5 seconds until impact, 9.1 seconds after the roll began. So now for the ultimate question. Why did the left elevator trim tab separate? 
The first thought actually allegedly came from Hoot Gibson, Leeward's good friend and competitor, who had previously worked for NASA and investigating the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster. Wow. So he had experience. Wow. The NTSB enlisted him for help, which I can't imagine was an easy task after watching your friend die. No, not at all. Catastrophically. The more they watched the video, the more they realized that the sudden roll to the left was something similar that Hoot had experienced in flight before, and we have actually talked about before, but not in a very long time. Wake turbulence. Ah. Aha. That comes up again with another friendo that'll be on later in September. If Jimmy had gotten too close to the plane in front of him, he might have flown through the vortices off their wings. So investigators took a look at the telemetry data from the front two planes, Voodoo and Strega, which were 4.5 and and 8.8 seconds ahead respectively. Unfortunately, the GPS ground track data for Voodoo was inaccurate, so investigators were unable to determine its exact flight path, and Strega did not record that particular parameter. Investigators could not determine the effect of wake turbulence on this event and do not exclude its possibility. Well, that still doesn't answer the question. So what else could there be? Investigators had to spend a lot of time learning about the P-51 Mustang and its capabilities, but more specifically about this particular P-51. It had been so heavily modified that they had to do a bunch of research about it in particular. During World War II, the P-51 was a long-range fighter that was built early on in the war. It was intended to be flown with a heavy load of fuel over those long distances, and it had a long wingspan accordingly. Jimmy Leeward purchased this plane in 1983, and it was painted bright yellow. And he had it registered with a special airworthiness certificate at the FAA's Long Beach, California Manufacturing Inspection District Office as experimental for the purposes of air racing and exhibition. It had registered limits, too, in that it was to be based and maintained at Leeward Air Ranch Airport in Ocala, Florida, and that all proficiency flights were to be conducted within 100 miles of there or on the way to air shows or air races. All experimental aircraft do have some kind of limit like this where you can't fly outside of where the FAA says unless you've shown that the aircraft is controllable in its normal speed range and maneuvers and that it isn't hazardous, you know, logically. It also means that any major changes to the aircraft have to be reported to the FAA Flight Standards District Office, or the FSDO, and they have to respond before the aircraft can be flown. The FSDO. Records show that Leeward notified the Reno office of a major change in 2009, where he installed a boil-off cooling system, and they said that a flight test of three hours of flight time and three takeoffs and landings should be performed, and he was authorized to do so in Minden, Nevada. The modification was completed on September 21st, 2009, and flight tests were performed over the next two days, but each flight was only 15 to 20 minutes, according to the ground crew. Okay, so no, he did not do flight tests as long and as much as he should have. But why is this a bigger problem? That was the only modification that was ever reported to the FAA. Was the oh, air cooling. that's a problem. The air cooling modification, yeah. The wings and the stabilizer weren't? Nope. Turns out a lot more had been done to that plane. He had shortened the wings by 8 feet and the tail by 1 foot, reducing the drag and allowing it to go faster, but this also decreases its stability. He also painted it gray in 1985 for the National Championship Air Races, you know, the same race, matching the name The Galloping Ghost. In 2007, he overhauled the engine to something that allowed him to reach speeds of up to and possibly over 500 miles an hour. There were no records of the performance modifications or that it was ever flight tested. Oh, that's a problem. Well, 
in delving into the airplane's history. Investigators also went through the maintenance records that did exist and found that during the pre-race safety inspection, the ground crew had tightened the elevator trim tab screws on the right side, which was still attached to the elevator in the wreckage. And it wasn't the first time that they had to either, according to the records. They were continuously getting looser, and they didn't tighten them on the left side before the race. Is that what went wrong? Each tab is attached at three hinges, one screw per hinge, and they were in the outboard center and inboard spots on the tab. You know, three across. Makes sense. Yep. After taking months to find all of the appropriate parts in the wreckage, investigators found a couple of concerning details. The screws on each of the hinges are secured with a lock nut. We have a picture of the assembly on our website for reference. All of the screws that were intact, which were the outboard and center screws on the left side and the inboard and outboard on the right side, were loose from their lock nuts, as in just spinning freely within the assembly. Not good. It's a lock nut. It's supposed to keep it tight. It's supposed to keep it from spinning. So why would this have happened? Upon closer inspection of the lock nuts, investigators found yellow paint on the lock nuts. The galloping ghost was gray. Why would the lock nut be yellow? Because it was painted yellow before it was painted gray. Turns out these were the same individual lock nuts that had been used on this plane since before its paint job in 1985. They never changed the lock nuts. They never changed the lock nuts. Ever? Nope. No one thought to be like, these are really loose all the time. Maybe we should check on the lock nuts. These are old. Furthermore... Lock nuts are supposed to have a fiber material that helps hold the screw in place. And it's just stripped. And this material was non-existent on the lock nuts. That fibrous material is why these lock nuts are supposed to be single-use lock nuts. Single-use. So, so they should have been changed, what, at least maybe at least 20 or so times? I would say every time you do your annual. Yeah. I don't know about every time you do your annual, but if you notice there's any problem with it at all, replace it. Anytime you're tightening it, you should probably just replace it. I mean, if it's loose, yes. Absolutely. There was no record for the last replacement of the attachment screw or the lock nuts, but given that there was yellow paint, I would say never in the 26 years preceding this accident. Now, for the inboard hinge on the left side. This was found separated from the elevator and took forever to find, but it was separated because the attachment screw was fractured, leaving part of the screw in the lock nut with the hinge. The NTSB's lab in D.C. examined the screw and found, quote, surface features consistent with reverse bending fatigue with the fatigue fracture regions exhibiting mechanical damage and corrosion that obliterated most of the finer fracture features. Say that five times fast. Indicative of the fracture propagating over a prolonged duration. The center of the fracture surface displayed features consistent with an overload failure. Examination of the skin at the outboard end of the separated left elevator trim tab revealed fracture features consistent with an overload event. End quote. To translate, the inboard screw failed once the fatigue crack reached its critical crack length, and then overload failure took over and it failed completely at the inboard corner of the trim tab, which put all the load on the outboard end, which couldn't handle the increased load and failed. Did they not replace the screws either? No. Nope. So, the nuts and the screws, which are 26 years old. Or more. And mm-hmm. they're holding this the trim tab in place. Oh, uh, they're not airplane. holding it in place. Well, they're <laughs> supposed to be. And they just never thought to replace them after having to, every time you fly the aircraft to tighten it, no one thought, 
Maybe we should just replace these. These look really old. Apparently not. Apparently that was not a thing. Nope. The lab also examined the center screw on the right elevator trim tab and found that it too had failed, which was why it appeared the way it did in the photos I mentioned earlier, but it didn't separate because the inboard and outboard screws managed to hold the load. Investigators found that the fatigue stress occurred because the lock nuts were so loose that it allowed for vibration and oscillation in the screw that it was not designed for. The photos I mentioned earlier that show the loose elevator trim controls prove how loose the screws were. The loss of the left trim tab's downward force on the elevator caused the elevator to deflect upward, causing the severe pitch up and increase in vertical acceleration. Now for a detail that wasn't in the Air Disasters episode and was almost glanced over in this entire report. The left side had a particular strain on the left elevator trim tab because the elevator system was modified so that it was the only trim tab that moved. The right trim tab wasn't supposed to move at all. They're only making left-hand turns. What happens if you have an emergency? Yeah, you know, maybe they should have given that a thought. They didn't. This made the failure that much more catastrophic because he couldn't move the right trim tab to compensate. See what I just said? What happens when a fucking trim tab falls off because you haven't changed the damn screws in 26 years? I think she's mad. I think she's mad. Quote, It is possible that had the airplane retained its original redundant tab design, the pilot may have been able to maintain some control following a failure on only one tab. Losing one tab from a two-tab installation would have resulted in about half of the stick force required to hold the airplane steady. Although the pilot would not initially be able to maintain control of the plane in such a scenario, the maximum G would have been much less than what the pilot experienced during the accident flight, and any stick force that the pilot could have provided would have further lessened the acceleration excursion. Therefore, it is possible that in a situation involving the failure of a one-tab and a two-tab system, the pilot could have maintained consciousness and regained control of the airplane. End quote. Also, what I don't understand is you have to fly this plane to the air show, right? You never turn right? I they, assume that they modified it once they were there. Yeah, they have a whole team of mechanics and everything on the ground there. I assume they modified this for the race specifically, but otherwise it was probably capable of moving during any normal flight. When it was going to the air show, it was probably attached normally, but then when they got to the air show, they modified it for the race. I don't know. It seems very fishy that no one was like... We have to tighten these screws every time we go to an air show. That's really weird. Well, yes. and none of these modifications were flight tested or reported to the FAA. Which it probably would not have been okay with. Because it's like, uh... There were other problems that I don't cover. Because they did not cause the crash. But, like, some of the pictures showed wrinkling in the fuselage. Yep. This airplane was really old. I mean, you're talking about a World War II bird. Flying at almost mock speeds. Which and it's not made for. There's a lot of yeah. modifications. So some of the modifications he made were, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Irresponsible. Stupid. Completely unnecessary. Mind you. Dangerous. Mind you, that's not the only airplane that was modified. But. Because no, a but lot of them were for this race. But Some of the modifications were in inhibitive to the structural capacity of the plane, which is why it started wrinkling at super high speeds. Yes. That's not the word I'm looking for, but someone else knows it and is screaming it at the top of their lungs. So, Post it in the comments. I, I, I know. I, I'll figure it out later, and I'll just scream it in the middle of the night. <laughs> Text me. Oh, well. <laughs> hey, I remember what the word is. <laughs> yeah, but to be fair... The other planes that were modified, 
probably, I want to say probably, because I don't know, the modifications were probably given to the FAA? Probably? I don't know. That's the hope. Um, uh, so hope. there's there's a whole section. We'll get a little bit into this in a bit. I'm going to get a little bit into it now. Okay. There's a whole section of the report entitled Previous Recommendations That Are Relevant or something along those lines. That's one of them. So Logic says that this is... Every time you change the airplane, the FAA has to know? Yeah. Basically. Logic says this has been a problem before if there's a previous recommendation. Yes. So, that's all I have. The The thing is, is if you know you're, you're modifying the airplane, and you know the FAA is probably going to tell you you can't fly this airplane anymore, maybe, maybe you, you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing it. it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be doing the modification and flying the airplane. Just saying. Well, we're going to take, take our... Break. break now. Bring it back before the not findings and the yeah. We'll get into it. Woohoo! Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm just kind of surprised that no one thought to replace either the lock, the lock nut or the screw when they're probably the least expensive parts to replace on the aircraft. You would be surprised. Because, for example, like my dad, he used to work in GA, and he was trying to get a a bolt, just a bolt, for the shimmy damper on a Cessna 182 RG, a retractable gear Cessna. So they're a little more rare, but still. Turns out these parts were hardly produced new. You most likely had to get them out of a salvage yard. A certified salvage yard. Salvage part, basically. You know, so you don't have a uh, yes. counterfeit part yeah. issue? Yes. So they found one, a certified part, for the cost of $5,000. What the hell? Did he get it? I think they had to. I think they didn't have a choice. That's awful. Yes. So, mind you, I mean, you think, oh, yeah, it's just a bolt and a nut. Yeah, but no, it's not. If it's FAA certified, it's probably not. <laughs> it's expensive. It's not just a nut. Yeah, but owning a, a plane is expensive. It is, inherently. And you and signed so, yes, up for this. Yes, yeah. and they did a lot of very expensive modifications to this airplane. So, undoubtedly, even if this was an expensive part, they could afford to yeah, replace it. chopping four feet off of each wing, I can't imagine that was cheap. No. So, yeah, I'm sure they could afford to replace the, the bolt and nut. I will give you that. Point being, they didn't. Just saying. Yep. It's probably, and it's probably one of the easiest things to replace, and it just didn't get replaced. Yes. There's no findings. Christy's doing the probable cause. Yeah, there, are, okay. yeah, there is no findings for this. Verbatim, as usual. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the reduced stiffness of the elevator trim tab system that allowed aerodynamic flutter to occur at race speeds. The reduced stiffness was a result of deteriorated lock nut inserts that allowed the trim tab attachment screws to become loose and to initiate fatigue cracking in one screw sometime before the accident flight. Aerodynamic flutter of the trim tabs resulted in a failure of the left trim tab link assembly, elevator movement, high flight loads, and a loss of control. Contributing to the accident were the undocumented and untested major modifications to the airplane and the pilot's operation of the airplane in the unique air racing environment without adequate flight testing. 
Now, I do realize that part of that probable cause does does mention the left trim tab link assembly, which I didn't really go into, but that also failed, consequently. Yeah, but it's not the primary issue here. No, it failed because of the screw. Yes. I didn't... it, It was a lot, so I pared it down. Okay. So for some recommendations, they had 10 of them, and I, oh will, I will read them verbatim. And mind you, some of these were also restatements, so they were already things that... Hey, we told you to do this already, and you didn't do it. Can you please do it? Thank you. Right. Thanks. I, I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> they recommended to the Federal Aviation Administration, revise FAA Order 8900.1. Flight Standards Information Management System, Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section 1, Paragraph 3-151, and AC-9145C. Quote, waivers, aviation events, end quote, to correct inaccurate and incomplete information and reconcile all differences and inconsistencies between the documents. So, they have two separate documents that govern these race events, basically, the FAA, and they say different things. So, there was probably a differing of opinion on certain legalities with these race events and that's ugly yeah that's i don't ugh. that was their only one directly to the faa which is a little different because the ntsb normally in the reports we do most of it's to the most FAA. if not all yes it's to the faa and the airline so now they recommend to the reno air racing association so this is specifically to the event require aircraft owners as a condition of eligibility to participate in the reno NCAR, which is the National, National Championship, Championship Air, Air Races, Races, to provide an engineering evaluation that includes flight demonstrations and analysis within the anticipated flight envelope for aircraft with any major modifications, such as to the structure of flight controls. So the trim tab, they're saying this needs to have an engineering evaluation test flight. Yeah. Well, it, need, it needs to have flight tests because of the modifications. If they had done flight testing on this, they would have seen the wrinkling, which would have immediately been of concern. Right. Nevertheless, looking at the elevator and seeing, oh, they don't match, and they should. They recommended to evaluate the design of the unlimited class course and safety areas to minimize maneuvering near and potential conflicts with spectators, if warranted by the results of the evaluation implemented changes to the race course. They did change the race course. They, it is now further from the audience, which obviously needed to happen. Yeah, because that was thing. a factor. Yeah, it was definitely a factor. So they did change it. It was moved. It is a lot safer now because they were, they, I mean, to be fair, the Reno Air Races, this, they had never injured or let alone killed a spectator before. So this no. was... Pilots had died before at the races, but... That was almost to be expected. That's kind of par for the course. It's a dangerous thing to do. I mean, it is what it is. So they, of course, don't want this to happen to the spectators ever again. So they took it very seriously, and they did what they needed to do to make this not happen again. They recommended to take the following actions to raise the level of safety for spectators and personnel near the race course. One, relocate the fuel trucks away from the ramp area. And... Two, in front of any area where spectators are present, install barriers more substantial than those currently in place. So they were just using little, like, metal fences, movable. All this has changed. They did take these actions and these recommendations, and they did make an action out of it. They did move. They don't put the fuel trucks where they were before, because the fuel truck was in a dangerous place. There was a fuel truck nearby where the airplane hit, 
They didn't want that to be a target. And then the barricades were changed. They recommended providing high-G training to pilots, including techniques to mitigate the potential effects of high-G exposure as part of preparations before the Reno NCAR and during daily briefs at the NCAR. So this is really important, and they did also accept this. Uh, This was also a change that was made. So any of the pilots that do these races are now supposed to have high-G training. In the event that these pilots have to go through a high-G maneuver, like Leeward did, then they would better know how to handle it. Now, 17 Gs, I don't know. That's no too far. That's but, you passing out almost dead type of Gs. But still, handling Gs better on your body and knowing how to do that, knowing how to mitigate the factors, knowing when to recognize that you might be going unconscious from it is really important. They recommended evaluating the feasibility of requiring pilots to wear G-suits when racing at the Reno NCAR. Please if, tell me they do this. If the evaluation determines it is feasible, implement a requirement. And they did. Thank God. This one was an acceptable action, according to the NTSB. Now, to the National Air Racing Group Unlimited Division. They recommended requiring aircraft owners in the Unlimited class to provide an engineering evaluation that includes flight demonstrations and analysis within the anticipated flight envelope for aircraft with any major modifications, such as to the structure or flight controls. Thank you. Very specifically, they need to do a flight test with the modifications, and they need to be legal. They recommended developing a system that tracks any discrepancies noted during pre-race technical inspections and verifies that they have been resolved. So when they note that a screw needs to be tightened because the inspection found that it was loose, it should be noted that it was corrected since they never knew... There needs to be some kind of quality assurance program. Yes, since they never knew whether or not the left side was tightened. Fun. Yep. They recommend providing high-G training to pilots, including techniques to mitigate the potential effects of high-G exposure as part of preparations before the Reno NCAR and during the daily briefs at the NCAR. So, a repeat, but this time to the yeah. association. And the last one is, again, about the G-suits, which, again, was an acceptable action. So, that is really all they recommended out of this, but they did do all of these things. The Reno Air Races are significantly safer today, and it shows. I mean, they they did all of these things, and nothing's really happened since. And it, it is it is a dangerous sport, no doubt, but at least the spectators are safer, pilots are safer, better set up to handle the situation. So this is... There were some big changes out of this, because this was a really high-profile yeah. accident. Like I said, the media went nuts over it, because all of it was on camera, and... In the Air Disasters episode, they show the very real footage of it crashing. It was very a very violent accident. And I definitely warn you guys before going and looking it up, because it's not easy to watch. No, it's not. The one thing, when you were telling me this is a World War II airplane, yep. that era, I figured it would be a maintenance problem. Because the airplane's so old, Yes. and a lot of the time... I hate to say this, but owners do not take proper care of old airplanes, and so they have old parts. The old parts fatigue, they get old, they stop working, and that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) Now, it's not that the part was from World War II era. No, but it was an old part. It was neglected. You can't just not do proper upkeep. Because we talked about that with the Junkers plane. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You have to make sure you're doing proper maintenance on these old aircraft or they're not airworthy. And 
a crash that has not been recommended to us, but we can actually cover now since the report has come out, is that B-17 that crashed at Bradley yes. a couple years ago. Same problem, was not properly maintained as a historical aircraft, and they were doing a sightseeing, like, oh, you get to fly in a B-17, you get to crash in a B-17. Yeah, yeah. it's ugly. So another thing of note, and I wanted to bring this up because this was interesting. It never came up in the episode or anything, but I noted this later. And this is on the Wikipedia page, so it's unconfirmed to me. But Best of resources. Yes, best of resources. I'm going to read this directly from the Wikipedia page because it's really interesting. You remember that we talked about Voodoo? Yes. The airplane that was right in front of him when he yes. crashed? In 1998, another modified P-51 Mustang, Voodoo Chile, lost a trim tab during the Reno Air Races. The pilot, Bob Hurricane Hanna, reported that the airplane pitched up, subjecting him to more than 10 Gs, sound familiar, and knocking him unconscious, sound familiar. When he regained consciousness, the plane had climbed to more than 9,000 feet, and he brought it in for a safe landing. This aircraft, having been renamed Voodoo, was in attendance at the 2011 race and was nearby at the time of the accident. <laughs> nearby. The same airplane had this... this same, same type problem. of airplane. The airplane right in front of him had the same How did problem. It not stall in 1998. Oh, it did. But you at that when you have that kind of altitude, you can get out of it. And that no, airplane is modified I mean, like, where it going can just up. Yeah, it just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling. That airplane it's is so powerful. modified. It has a heavy engine on it. It's gonna go. The fortunate thing is that when he fell unconscious, he was pulling the stick back rather than pushing down. Oh, like okay. Leeward. So Leeward. The unfortunate thing about Leeward he was slumped. that he slumped. So the airplane pitched over, nosed over, and down toward the crowd. But with Voodoo, he pitched up. And, and because he was fallen. leaning back in his seat, he was pulling on the control back. Oh, so okay. fortunately, the airplane actually just went straight up, and it didn't come back down on the spectator. So he managed to actually land the plane safely, and it flew again, obviously, for quite a few more races, because it was in 2011. I wonder Race if it's two. still racing. It might be. Hold on. It's purple and yellow. I, I know. I watched the stupid... Yes, or it was. Voodoo P-51. Oh, it has its own Wikipedia page. I'm sure it does. Voodoo went on to win in 2013, 14, and 16 the Unlimited Class Champion of the Reno Air Races. Wow. Does it say if it's still flying? Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The record attempt was set to occur on August 27th, 2017 at an undisclosed location in Idaho, but was delayed until the next day due to weather conditions. Trying to get highest speed? I think so. For a piston airplane? That's an insane record to try to break. Yeah, made an attempt to break or er, made an attempt to break the 3 kilometer world speed record of 528.33 miles per hour. Oof. The attempt was finally flown in on September 2nd, 2017, with the fastest of the four runs at 554.69 miles an hour. That record's not going to be broken for a long time. While this, broke, while this broke the C1E record set by Will Whiteside and the Yak3U Steadfast in 2012, due to changes in record measurement standards, the rare bear record was not bettered as it had to be beaten by at least 1%. And it was ah. not. Hmm. Um... Oh, and on December 28th, 2017, Voodoo was donated to Plains of Fame Air Museum in Chino, California. Oh. Registration transfer change completed on April 5th, 2018. I didn't know it was So it's in an air museum. Yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't know it was at Plains of Fame. We should go there. It came second to Strega at the Unlimited Gold Race at Reno in 2017. That was the last time it flew. 
Wow. And the races. Well, there you go. It was a very unfortunate, very high-profile high event, but it changed a lot of things that needed to change, and these are incredible machines. I mean, the fact that they were still sturdy enough to do this, I mean, the fact that Voodoo lived out its life and yeah. being so heavily modified the way it was is incredible. I mean, when they when you modify these airplanes correctly and maintain them, wow, what an unbelievable thing. Yeah, the whole uh, the moral to the story is making sure you're maintaining your airplane, right? Making sure it has yep. proper maintenance and legal, that it's legal. Legal, <laughs> tested, and everything. It just, yeah. It, it it's the, unfortunate. The FAA, know, FAA knows when you're doing a modification because they need to know. Yep. Okay. Well, did you flight test this? Is this airworthy? Yeah. Can you fly this airplane and be safe doing so? Right. Because the FAA, it, it, as much as we poo-poo the FAA sometimes, they're trying to keep people safe and alive. They are. And. I know that some people are like, oh, well, there's so many rules and, and regulations. And, and yeah, that's so you stay alive, yeah, friendo. It's so you don't die flying an airplane or die getting on an airplane or the whole whatever. The reason the FAA exists and the FAR, the Federal Aviation Regulations, is because... And the Code of Federal Regulations. Yes, and the Code of Federal Regulations and all that. These, All these things exist for a reason, and generally it's because of something that happened. So there you go. That's We'll get off our soapbox now, but... Maintain your airplanes, please. And thank you. And tell people. This has been our TED Talk. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Check out the merch, as we said before. Check out Patreon. You can look that info up on our website under the Patreon info tab. Or you can go to Patreon and just look us up. It tells you everything you get with your Patreon membership. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please let us know. Make sure to send us august stories we have zero august stories by the time we've uh, recorded this so we can't do the stories if we don't have any stories right so we'll end up bleeding it into september if we don't have any stories so make sure you send your stories and i think that's it okay all right so have a safe and wonderful rest of your week and we will catch you all next week keep your air speed up Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at HardLandingsPodcast and on Twitter at HardLandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HardLandingsPodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.